This morning's Bible reading comes from Joshua 8. Um, for those of you who are with us here this morning, you can find that passage in the Pew Bibles on page 174, or it will appear behind me. <clears throat> Joshua 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for, them, for yourselves. <clears throat> Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you will be on alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions with the main camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in bat battle at a certain place overlooking Arabah. But he did not know that the ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the wilderness. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing toward the wilderness had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. 
Those in the ambush also came out of the city against them, so that they were caught in the middle, with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city, as the law had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate and they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Abel. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had finally com commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Friends, uh, one of the uh, advantages of uh, preaching through different parts of the Bible means you have to address topics you wouldn't normally want to address. And uh, as you hear that story, as we saw in the destruction of Jericho a couple of weeks ago, and we saw in the death of Achan and his family, who were part of the people of God last week, we see the destruction of another, another a group of people today in ways that seem uh, so foreign to us. And, uh, and people then often will then question God and will then ask the question or often make the statement, well, the God of the New Testament is much nicer than the God of the Old Testament. So we admit that as we look at the Word of God and uh, what is God saying, what is God teaching us, and is it true that the God of the New Testament is different to the God of the Old Testament? And obviously I will say no. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord God, speak to us today, we pray that we would understand your word and your plan in history and where the Joshua narratives fit in. But we thank you ultimately that it all led to the coming of Christ, our Saviour, who would die in our place and suffer injustice, suffering and death, that we would be reconciled to you. We thank you that we now stand as forgiven children of God uh, with uh, 
dignity, meaning and purpose. And we ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I read an article a few years ago. It was titled, I Never Knew Such a God Existed. Uh, there was an Indian fellow. Um, he was a doctor of science and uh, a university lecturer in chemistry. And he met uh, Dr. Chris Wright, a Christian Old Testament specialist. And he said, oh, I am so thrilled when you said that you're going to be preaching from the Old Testament because I became a Christian through reading the Old Testament. And Dr. Wright, an Old Testament specialist, said, well, fantastic, tell me more about that. Not many people say that to me. And this man described his life, you see, he grew up in a place of injustice, a backward oppressed place in India where the powerful people oppressed the poor. Uh, he grew up with injustice and he said, uh, I became angry at the powerful people who abused the poor in my community. And I wanted to uh, study and raise myself to a level where I could get back at those people who abused me. And I uh, committed to the revolutionary ideals and to Marxism. I want you to get power to overturn those horrors. Yet what I found interesting is I read the Old Testament, God was on the side of the poor and the suffering. God wasn't with the powerful, but with the poor. And so I read uh, a story in 1 Kings 21 about Naboth, Ahab, and Jezebel, a terrible King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. I was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor. I was so familiar with that. And here it was in the Bible, what I was suffering. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. He was a God of real justice, he says. A God who identified the real villains and took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed. This God constantly took the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. And then he said, then I read the specific laws of the books of the law. God, I thought, wow, you're so perfect. You think of everything. Impressed with the tremendous attention to detail of Old Testament law. It was also practical, covering every aspect of everyday life. Just my, like my Indian life. A relevant God indeed, he says. And there was his holiness. There was a serious God who meant what he said and expected people to act accordingly. He was not capricious or arbitrary like the gods of mythology, but a God of absolute purity, a God to be careful with. So at the end of Isaiah 42, though, describes Israel's sin and God's just punishment. But suddenly, unexpectedly, God is talking about forgiveness and pardon and love. He says, I couldn't take that. I was attracted to the God of justice and holiness. I ran away from a God of love. But the more I read the Old Testament and I got to the New Testament, I realized that there's God's justice and love coming together on the cross of Jesus. Christ dies. He takes God's justice, God's punishment. At the same time, it is a demonstration of God's love. He said, I, I didn't know how to handle this. I just wanted justice. Punishment, But God would say, no, 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 there is love as well. 
he on, went on to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Chris Wright writes, What struck me most forcefully was the fact that the things that had so attracted him to the God we read about in the Old Testament are very things which Western Christians so often find themselves repelled by. Shortly before leaving for those seminars in India, I'd been taking one in England and had been questioned yet again as to how God could possibly have commanded destruction of acted in retributive punishments. Such things offend our supposed civilised sensibilities. Perhaps we cannot, cannot understand them because we have never known what it is like to cry out to heaven from a situation of systematic cruelty and exploitation. As C.S. Lewis observed, our discomfort with things like the Old Testament curses and evildoers may indicate not so much our greater moral sensitivity as our appalling moral apathy. Interesting insights from an Indian believer. Well, friends, we hold together today as Christians that God is a God of holiness and a God of justice. That's why we began singing about a holy God this morning. A God who hates evil and will do something about it. He doesn't always do something about it. He allows murders to take place. He allows terrible crimes to take place across the globe today. But one day he will bring ultimate judgments. And he calls men and women to turn from sin and wickedness to trust him as Lord. Now in the book of Joshua, God is working to place his people into a physical land which includes conquest to take possession of that land through which the Saviour would come. We are not, let me say right at the beginning, we are not in that situation today. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus did not fight with arms when he was on the earth. But in this part of history, salvation history, the people of God are being moved into a land and God asked them to do, I mean to go to war, he asked them to do certain things that we, I guess, wouldn't be doing today. So in chapter 8, Israel is going to have a second go at defeating Ai. Remember chapter 7? They failed. Uh, the sin of Achan was discovered. He had taken some of the devoted things. And God punished Achan and his family. What will happen now? They're having a second go. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. God says, it's my battle, listen to me, you will get the victory, we will achieve what we have set out to achieve. I want to place you into the promised land. And they succeed. You've heard the story, I'm not recounting it. But secondly, I want you to notice something, that if you obey God, you find blessing and fulfilment, but if you disobey God and reject God, it leads to judgment and disaster. And for the Canaanites, because of their idolatry and the moral behaviours, God came in an immediate, severe judgment. Verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness, where they had chased them, uh, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. There's a lot of killing here. 12,000 men and women filled that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed it and all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and the plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. This time they could take some of the things, unlike 
previous commands. So Joshua burned Ai, made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole, throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. They raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Let's take a few minutes this morning to think of why God has asked them to do this and act in such a severe way in this part of Israel's history. I think the answers to these questions are vital to your own faith, because we all ask the same questions, right? One of the biggest questions is, why would God ask for such a severe conquest? And it's also vital in answering the questions of your friends. And you may not find these answers ultimately satisfying. But you think, I'm going to trust God even though I don't have the uh, fully satisfied answers. But let me give you a number of principles that are helpful here. And I've uh, borrowed from uh, Barry Webb from Moore College lecture notes uh, a number of years ago. Number one. It shows that religion in itself is no protection against God's judgment. The Canaanites were, <coughs> excuse me, they were religious, but their religion was an abomination to God, Deuteronomy. False religion takes something that is no God, an idol, and puts it in the place of God. It robs God of the honor that is due to him, and that's something that he will not finally tolerate. In our pluralistic society, some people want to argue that all religions lead to heaven. Not true. All religions do not lead to heaven. False religions come under the judgment of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. Religion is no protection against God's judgments. And there is a judgment coming. Secondly, the judgment that God brought on the Canaanites does not mean that he holds human life cheap. Quite the reverse. Human beings are made in the image of God, and that is another reason why anything, including false religion, that debases and degrades people is an abomination to God. Clearly seen in the destruction that God brought on the world in Noah's day because of violence, chapter 6, verse 13, and in so on Sodom and Gomorrah in Abraham's day because of immorality, Genesis 18. Human life is valuable when it is abused, debased, degraded. God acts in judgment. Thirdly, God judges wickedness. The religion of the Canaanites was polytheistic and amongst other things included child sacrifice, idolatry, religious prostitution, witchcraft, divination. God condemned it for its wickedness. He's not judging a holy perfect people, but a wicked people. So when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, Deuteronomy says, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Important warnings for us. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. You're going to go into a place who, where a group of people commit terrible sins. Don't be like them. Fourth, God judges the Canaanites to prevent Israel from being corrupted. 
God's verdict was that their religion was such an abomination, so vile and all-pervasive, that the danger of his own people being corrupted by it was so great they could only be dealt with by wholesale destruction. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20. Fifthly, the judgment on the Canaanites came after a long period of forbearance by God. Already in Abraham's time, the iniquity of the Amorites, the Canaanites, was known to God, but he restrained his hand for 400 years, Genesis 15, verse 16 says. God has seen their sin year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and God has withheld his judgment and finally says, this far and no more. He brings his judgment. Sixth, as a special act of God's judgment in history, it serves as a warning of the final judgment. Whenever we see that type of judgment of God in the Old Testament, we need to think there's going to be an ultimate judgment at the end, on the final day. But we cannot, let me say this strongly, we cannot generalise from it to justify any form of religious war today. God gave clear instructions to his people, as I said, we are now a spiritual kingdom. We do not go to war in Jesus' name. Sadly, countries have done that in the past. We do not go in Jesus' name. It is a spiritual kingdom. Finally, the story of Rahab the harlot in Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6 illustrates the fact that even at the 11th hour, God's mercy is still available to anyone, however bad, who is prepared to renounce their false gods and false ways and cast them upon him. That mercy is still available today. The Bible says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21 I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. God is interested in saving people, but where he is rejected, judgment ultimately follows. Friends, we live this side of the cross. Aren't you thankful for that? We sometimes... Even this side of the cross shrink from the holiday of God's judgment. Most of our gospel presentations about the love of God coming to save us, correct? I don't want to talk about judgment or hell, do you? Not at all. But if you fail to talk about judgment and hell, then you fail to give a complete message of the gospel. The reason why God comes is because we are already under the judgment of God and we need to be rescued from that through the faith in Christ. And friends, if you think Joshua 6 or Joshua 8 is bad, what will the final day be like when Christ returns? It's interesting, when I was in Lebanon a few years ago uh, serving with Milad, I met some new believers Many had been brought up in a religion, but had now found a relationship with Christ through faith. I found it interesting that they were angry that they had been lied to and enslaved to religion rather than a relation with Jesus. They said, we had all this religious stuff, but no one ever told us how to have a personal relation with the Lord Jesus Christ. It said, we were on the way to hell and no one gave us the true gospel message. And now, having been saved, they wanted to help other people escape hell. 
And one person said, many people are religious, but they are deliberate sinners. As long as they are not too bad, they think they will end up in purgatory and then slide into heaven after that. And they're saying, it's just wrong. The Bible says, if they don't receive Christ and believe in him, they are going to hell. Only Jesus can save them. And friends, there is the final judgment in hell. Let me take you to the New Testament. Listen to the language that the Bible uses about the ultimate judgment. It's the fire of hell. Out of darkness, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. It's torment. The bottomless pit. Depart from me, you cursed, into the, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go to eternal punishment. Second death, lake of fire, everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Will be beaten with many blows, perishing. All unpleasant. In the end, sin will not go unpunished. Justice will take place. God says there is a judgment coming. Now, theologian Millard Erickson puts it this way, trying to describe pulling together the various images of the final judgment. In contrast to heaven, it is the absence of God or banishment from his presence. It is an experience of intense anguish, whether it involves physical suffering or mental distress or both. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain writes, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. You didn't want God, okay, you don't get God in the end. In The Great Divorce, he writes, hell is made up of people who live an infinite distance from each other. Surely this is a graphic picture of the result of the loss of God in our life. There are no big parties in hell with your mates. According to the New Testament, heaven is community, hell is isolation. And uh, how do we describe the indescribable? The Bible uses all these images to describe what it's like. And in A Fresh Start by John Chapman, the late John Chapman, he writes this haunting piece. He writes, he had never felt such aloneness before. Where is my wife? Your wife is not here. Where are my children, he asks. Your children are not here. He started to grope about in the darkness as man, but all was blindness. My God, he howled again. Let me feel the presence of one single human being. My God. He hadn't said those words in such a long time. My God. Now they seem so hollow. Terror was welling up in him. He felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No candles anywhere. No voice anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. Where are my children? He pleaded. Your children are not here. Then the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but he knew he would have to. His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and wailed into the nebulous night. Where, oh, where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that hideous echo whispering that most horrifying of all judgments. God is not here. Friends, Revelation 20.15 says, If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In verse 10, we are told that the devil, the beast and the false prophets were also thrown there and they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. Eternal torment and no escape. Judgment is final. 
Heaven and hell are our final destinies. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. One writer has put it this way, Hell is the chosen place of the person who loves self more than God, who loves sin more than the Saviour, who loves this world more than God's world. Judgment is that moment God looks at the rebellious and says, your choice will be on it. Does God send anyone to hell? In one sense he does. But in fact we send ourselves to hell by refusing to believe in God and to go our own way. The end result of unbelief is catastrophic. All evil merits hell, but God sent his son to make a way of salvation. And in a few moments, we're going to remember the broken body of the Lord Jesus, the shed blood of Christ, which brings us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Because, friends, sin will be judged in one of two places. In hell or in the body of Christ on our behalf. And each of us has to make a choice. How then shall we live? Well, the old the people in Joshua's day had to submit to God and his word, didn't they? God had a word. He, he said, obey me, follow me. They, they would find blessing and forgiveness in that situation. And in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 to 35, remember the people sort of renewed their covenant following Moses' instructions. They built an altar of uncut stones, as Moses instructed. They offered to the Lord burnt offerings to bring atonement. They offered fellowship offerings as an expression of a communal meal that they would have with God, speaking of peace and wholeness with God and with one another. So they're now acting and putting into place what God has asked them to do. They're restoring their relationship with God. And Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, we're told, and then they read them all out. In other words, here we are in the promised land. We were 40 years in the wilderness. We finally, we've defeated Jericho, defeated Ai. Let's get this right. You have to obey the word of the Lord. You have been saved by grace, Israel. Now you are called to obey God. What about us? Well, we too need to submit to God and his word. We need to realize that God's grace promises salvation and eternal life. It ought to lead to gratitude. When you realize that Christ took your punishment on a cross, he suffered injustice on your behalf, and you are now forgiven, you no longer have to, in one sense, give an account for your sins because Jesus died for you. That's great news, and you live all of your life in gratitude. We also need to be prayerful. Friends, in the Western world, and I know it's in my own experience, I do not pray enough for the lost, family members and friends. I live as if there is no hell, there is only a heaven. What about you? Because if I truly believed in a hell, I'd be on my knees more often, don't you think? I'd be evangelizing more often, don't you think? Be compassionate. See, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, Luke 19, 49, because judgment, judgment was going to come on Jerusalem. He urged the daughters of Jerusalem to weep, not for him, but for themselves and their children, for what was about to take place. He was going to the cross, so don't weep for me. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had great sorrow and unceasing anguish because Israel, his people, were going to suffer rejection by Christ. 
He said, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He said, this is so important, Israel. I want you to come to know Christ, come to him. Be witnesses, share the gospel. If Christ is the only way of salvation, we need to share that with people. Friends, the other Friday at a funeral service for Brian Booth, I had the privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to a gathering of people, many were not believers. I wanted them to know that Christ was the only way of salvation. And they were to die unforgiven. They would suffer for eternity. And on Tuesday, at Joan Fulton's funeral, again, I'm not going to hold back. Amen? You don't hold back. You bring him the love of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection, the hope of eternity, and call upon them. Not simply tell them, call upon them to believe the gospel to find eternal life. Let me conclude. And I remember another story. I met a young woman in Lebanon, again when I was with Milan, and uh, this woman had been abusing drugs and alcohol in a wealthy family, so she had anything she wanted. And she didn't really know what she wanted in life, so she abused things. She was on her way to hell, she said. I talked to her, she said, my mother was a Christian and she prayed for me. And I'd heard about Millard being the new pastor there, but, um, but I would run from him. I didn't want to talk to him. <laughs> so I'd run from anyone who could bring hope. Then one day, as people kept praying for me, as my mother kept praying for me, said, I saw Millard in a shopping center, and I normally I would turn and run the other way. At that point, God grabbed me. and said, no, no, go and talk to him. She came to Christ. Life was transformed, no longer abusing drugs and alcohol, but now a transformed child of the living God, no longer on the way to hell and judgment, but on the way to heaven and eternity. The gospel is good news, friends. But we need to weep and to agonize like the Apostle Paul with great sorrow and unceasing anguish that men and women are walking into eternity unforgiven. And the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if men and women will go to hell, let them do so with our arms wrapped around their knees, their knees begging them to stay. Don't go. Come to Jesus. Don't go. Come to Jesus. That's our posture. Don't go. We love you. There is a better way. There is a better place. There is a better saviour.